I, uh, as our, our kids are heading out, um, I'm going to start a little bit differently than I typically do. Um, also, just uh, as my deal here tries to figure out what's going to, ah, oh, there we go. Um, I am uh, at a disadvantage this morning, and uh, I'm going to sit for a little bit. Um, had a little bit of an experience this week that uh, I want to share with you, and then uh, we're going to get to our business. Um, I uh, had a little bit of a scare this week um, with some cardiac issues that, that uh, had me in the hospital for a few days. And, uh, you know, it's one of those um, couple of things that I want to talk about with that is the first is it uh, made me quite aware of what we have here, but only what we have if we actually exercise it. And that's a family that brings support. Um, you know, we were a little bit slow to let some folks know what was going on. And part of it is because we were dealing with what was going on. Um, but I just say, if you're dealing with anything, the sooner you can let us know, the sooner we can get uh, our response moving. And it starts with the heavy artillery of praying. Um, with that, then, you know, we can start to meet the needs that, that come with anything. And, and the reason I bring that up is I know that I'm not the only one that has had uh, medical issues, tragedy, um, just the difficulty of life come up. And one of the benefits of being in the kingdom is that we get to do this together. And um, I don't have to do things for myself because I have all of you, which is true for you as well. Um, Another thing that I, that I want to bring out of this is that, that when this happened, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy that will go to the ER or the doctor, you know, unless, you know, like the VA is, you know, threatening to cancel my benefits because I haven't seen the doctor in a while or, you know, I'd, I'd rather, like, if I got, if I need stitches, or like, if you got super glue and duct tape, there's really no need for medical professionals, right? Um, but uh, <laughs> I apologize to uh, the several physicians and nurses in the room. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I, um, there's something that happened that, that I, I don't know quite what to do with yet, but I want to, um, I want to talk about it today because whatever comes, I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see what we do with this. But I had a moment that I didn't realize what was happening until um, one of the, the, uh, the uh, nurses asked me the question of if I had a, a feeling of impending doom. And I guess that's something that happens when um, folks are having heart attacks or something like they get a feeling of impending doom. Swept over me in, in a way that I can't tell you other than it was the furthest I've ever felt from God. I was terrified. And that's not something that uh, I, I've experienced before. And I've been in a lot of scary situations before. But it was uh, it certainly, when they asked me about the feeling of impending doom, I know exactly what they're talking about. And I also can tie that right away to uh, the feeling of being separated from God. And so a starting place for us as we deal with that is we know a lot of people that walk around separated from God that have a feeling of impending doom. And we know what we can do about it. And so if, if nothing else, um, we can use this as a wake up to, uh, to be serious about the mission of God. And so I don't know what else is going to come out of this. I'm not sure. Um, I still don't know what happened. I got all the, the tests done. They, um, you know, did a stress test, uh, did all kinds of imaging. 
Um, I found out, didn't know this, uh, dogs cannot be MRI'd, but cats can. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, um, that's, um, you know, all that stuff came out clean, and so, you know, it's just an undiagnosed deal that's just making me really tired, and so, you know, we'll get through it. I don't know what that means, but we'll get through it. Um, I want to let you know that that happened, and also because um, we got to share this stuff as a family, and so with that, um, we're going to get going with what we've got today, and uh, you know, I'm going to sit for as long as I can handle it, and then I'm going to stand up until I need to sit down again. So um, if you were with us last week, you know that we started our fall teaching series, uh, the series that we're calling Abide. And, you know, in, in John chapter 15, we see Jesus use this metaphor of, of vines and branches that, that teach us about the way, of, uh, uh, the way that, that the life of faith works. In this metaphor, Jesus beckons us to draw life from relationship with him, that, that he would be the thing that we draw life from. It's a call to abide or a call to remain. The Greek word that, that we see here is meno. To meno with Jesus is to draw life from him that allows us to remain with him, but also to be sustained by him. Uh, now, we're using several parables of Jesus to, to allow his teachings to show us what it looks like and how the kingdom of God interacts with the loving Father's creation, what it looks like to actually abide. These parables, if you've been following Jesus for a while, you've probably been through the parables several different times. And so I, what I'd encourage you to do is use them in, in one of the manners that, that, that we can, is as a measure of, of effectiveness. But if you're hearing it for the first time, you can see the love of the Father unfold. Now there's a dude, C.J. Cadeau, or if you are... Uh, as educated as I am, uh, C.J. Cadux was an early 20th century. That was a joke for those French people in the room. You laugh at CAT scan and you're not going to laugh at that? Come on. Put me back in the hospital and not laugh at my jokes. <laughs> C.J. Cadux, was a, he was an early uh, 20th century theologian, and he was an author that had ties to the Quakers. Now, if you know anything about the Vineyard Movement, you know that we also have ties to the Quakers. Uh, but uh, one of the things about the Quakers is they were, they were pacifist, and, and they felt very uh, strong about their pa pacifism as being um, directed by the Lord. Now, during the First World War, C.J. Cadeau uh, was a conscientious objector, but he served in something called the Friends Ambulance Unit. His conscience did not allow him to fight, but his theology compelled him to serve. And so he served in the First World War as, uh, as a, basically as a paramedic. Now, talking about him, that gives a little bit more context than I typically give when I'm, uh, when I'm lifting a quote from someone else. Uh, but I give it because this life that he lived exemplifies what he learned from the teachings of Jesus. The fact that, that he couldn't fight, but he, was, he, was, he had to serve. He found a way to do what he knew it was imperative for him to do. The parables that we talk about are not warm and fuzzy. They're not safe. They're not comfort-bringing fairy tales. They represent a call to uh, a great risk that also leads to the highest reward. In one of the works that, that C.J. Cadeau wrote, he said that the parable is art harnessed 
for service and conflict. That's pretty cool, even though I really don't know what it means. But it says art, so that has to be a smart thing to say, right? Art harnessed for service and conflict. He goes on to say, in its most characteristic use, the parable is a weapon of controversy, not shaped like a sonnet in the undisturbed concentration, but improvised in conflict to meet the unpremeditated situation. In its highest use, it shows sensitivity of the poet, the penetration, rapidity, and resourcefulness of the protagonist, and the courage that allows such a mind to work unimpeded by the turmoil and danger of moral conflict. Those are the parables of Jesus that we're going to study together. To abide in Jesus, as we talked about last week, is to abide in nothing else. To draw life from Jesus means that we draw life from nothing else. The danger is this, is that it means that the false life support that, that culture around us maintains is something a follower of Jesus is, is detached from. We're detached from the counterfeit life support if we are attached to Jesus, if we're minnowing, if we're abiding in him. While the message of Jesus is a call to the ministry of reconciliation, that reconciliation comes by way of conflict as the kingdom of, of the world clashes with the kingdom of God. The call to abide is present in this conflict. To draw life from Jesus as the vine feeds the branches. Now much of the time that I've studied the parables, I often get uncomfortable. Partly I get uncomfortable because Jesus doesn't really have a lot of uh, manners for the people he's teaching with, and it gets kind of cringy at times. And he also uh, steadfastly refuses to answer the questions that are put before him. And uh, it's uh, really, actually, this is where our Lord and Savior um, looks the, the most strong, in my opinion. The most strength um, that we see in Jesus comes in the way that he teaches a parable. It is his greatest weapon, and it blows my mind. I get uncomfortable sometimes when I read them, and then I feel a sense of conviction that leads to, to, to resolve. And, and all of that then leads to a growing peace as, as I try to take this and apply it to the conflict that I feel with the two kingdoms that are, that are clashing outside of me. I try to apply the lessons that I see um, to my life, and I, I try to allow that life from the vine to flow into this weak but growing stronger branch. And so with all of that, let's jump into the parables of the sower. We're going to do the parable of the sower out of Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lake shore. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, as he got in, so he got into a boat. He sat in the boat while the people remained on the shore. He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen. In some translations you see, look, listen. And so what that leads us to is this idea that as Jesus, basically with the, the, the lakeshore kind of creating an amphitheater around him, he moves into this boat to be able to teach, and he's pointing up to uh, a, a farmer spreading seed, and he's saying, look at that guy, let's draw a lesson from that guy right there, look. 
listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plant so they produced no grain. Still others fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as it had been planted. Then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. One of my great friends, one of my mentors, uh, someone who's taught this very parable in our congregation, Michael Gatlin, um, taught us to refer to this parable as the parable, uh, not as the parable of the sower, but as the parable of the really crappy farmer. And his point that, that only Jesus, only God, would sow seed like this. This makes no sense. This is really not a, uh, from, the, from the standpoint of the world, this is a really terrible way to be a farmer. Uh, now, a competent farmer, which I'm not calling Jesus incompetent, I'm just saying you know, a, a competent farmer cast their seed in, in, in prepared soil in a very specific way that, that ensures the best possible chance for success. This farmer is just casting seed, this precious resource, in a manner that, that would fit a really bad farmer. He doesn't care. Just he, well, Jesus cares. Don't, take too, don't read too much into that. But he's casting this, he's just like throwing it, just willy-nilly, just skipping along, tossing the seed everywhere, not, doesn't care where it falls. This is a crappy farmer. This is not good. This precious resource is falling in all kinds of places. And in this, we find the character of God and something that I'm truly thankful for. I'm thankful for Jesus presenting God as a really crappy farmer because it shows that God can be trusted to be who he says that he is. The result of the sowing is due to the soil where the seed falls. Now we have to hold on to that point. The result of the sowing, the result of the fruit, the result of that plant is tied to the soil where the seed falls. Where the seed falls. This calls us to recognize that there is a correlation between how the seed was sown and what was produced, but also where the seed fell and what was produced. And if we put this another way, what that means is there is not a selection criteria applied to where the seed was scattered. This seed was not scattered by the people that were most prepared or the best behaved, the good. This seed was scattered to all. And in that, that's the character of God. The love of a Lord that would say, I don't care where your soil is right now, I'm throwing this seed and we're going to deal with it. That's the love of the Father engaging his creation. So we can be thankful for a really crappy farmer. There is no hurdle to clear. There's no standard to meet. There's no performance evaluation that must be completed. God scatters the seed as widely as he can throw, and God's got an arm on him. 
This is another demonstration that salvation says more about him than it says about us. All summer, we examined the product of, of participation being faith. We went through Hebrews 11, 12 weeks of it. We talked about how we're invited into the story of God's unfolding plan. This terrible farmer is an amazing God that is motivated by the love that he has for those that he intentionally created. Now, if you're wondering who was intentionally created and who was unintentionally created, this is a simple test. If you're here, if you're breathing, if you can hear my voice, if you can hear anybody's voice, if you were alive, if you've been created, it was intentional. God is not a God of accidents, which means you are not an accident. I'm not an accident. And if you're not an accident, then you're definitely intentional. The terrible farmer is motivated by a desire to reconcile with the intentional creation that images the Father. Regardless of where we are, regardless of what we've done, the love of God is cast into all creation and the invitation is, is extended to all of us. Verse 10. Later when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, you're permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God. But I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When, I, when, they see, when they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. I don't like this passage at all. This one makes me stop for a second, like reread it, and make sure that, the, are those really the red words? And they are. Jesus, though, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, maybe one of the hardest passages uh, to grasp in my reading of the Gospels is this passage right here. I, I read this and I wonder, what is God doing here? What does this mean? At first glance, I get concerned that, that Jesus is saying that, that in choosing to use parables, he's intentionally keeping people from understanding the message. But if that were the case, he would be a good farmer. And we see from this parable that he's a really crappy farmer. Why is he tossing seed around to cover every inch of creation if there's an intention here to make sure that only some people get into the kingdom? Only some people receive his love. Only some. And this isn't actually the point of what Jesus is saying at all. When we unpack the intent, we actually see that the character of God that would make him a crappy farmer is the character of God that, that teaches in parables. The secret to the kingdom 
the mystery of God, something we all come up against at some point in our journey, at least I have, asking the question. I mean, let's just do a quick poll. We ain't done in a poll in a while. Anybody ever questioned why God did something the way that he did? Raise your hand if you ever did done that. All right, you're in good, you're in good hands. And I, I would say that uh, if you didn't raise your hand, actually everybody did, so we don't need to go down there. But this secret to the kingdom, the mystery of God, it tests our faith and our ability to abide in him, right? At least it does for me. It definitely tests my faith. When God, especially when it doesn't align with my plan, when God's acting outside of the way that I think would probably be best for him, it, it really causes me some struggle in my faith. The question of why God does what he does or why God doesn't do what he doesn't do or why he chooses to do things in the way that he does one answer is well that's the mystery and it's his mystery and so part of us there is a piece that we have to reckon with that that we've got to reconcile with the fact that the mystery of god is his mystery and it's his prerogative to have it in this particular case I think the answer of, of what's going on here is tied to the main reason that Jesus is he's using parables to begin with, and, and it uh, lines up well with that quote that we started out with. He's presenting God's plan, and this plan does not look like what people expect. He's beginning to unfold this in the Gospels, this plan of this crappy farmer. This uh, uh, Scattering the seed in this way is not what the nation of Israel would expect. They're not expecting a Messiah to come as a terrible farmer. And so what he's saying is the unfolding plan of God is not going to be coming in the way that you expect, but it's coming, and it's good. He's presenting this plan, a plan that doesn't look anything like what we would design. And the problem that comes here is that, that when the nation of Israel does what we are also good at doing is when, when we build religion on false expectations, we miss the truth because we're looking for something that, that we've created rather than something that God has promised. And so God is missing our expectation because he's not hitting our creation. And so our faith struggles. It's a mystery. The people that Jesus is teaching in this historical moment don't expect the kingdom of God to come by way of a crappy farmer that would throw seed into every corner that he can reach. They're expecting it to come by way of political and military victory that would crush all opposition and restore the nation of Israel to, to its place as the chosen, chosen nation of God. But God's plan is different. And this is something that we can take note of here as well, especially as we move forward in the parables this fall. We have opposition against us. But if our expectation is for God to come and provide political and military victory by crushing the opposition and restoring our power, I think we're probably going to miss him. So, we can hear and understand. God's plan is different than what we expect. God's plan is different than what they expect. If we build an expectation of the mission of God predicated on our own desires, we will miss the coming king. 
And I can tell you, I've read through to the end of this book, The King Comes Back. And it's pretty freaking awesome. I don't want to miss it because I build expectations on God based on my own desires. Blinded by prejudice, deafened by wishful thinking, entrenched in self-concern, this is how the teaching can be missed. Jesus shows mercy on the twelve, and he removes the mystery of the parable for all of us in verse 13. And Jesus said to them, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to, to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represent others who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce, produce a harvest, 30 60, even a hundred times as much as has been planted. In the, uh, the revelation of this parable, we see the soils and the outcome presented plainly and clearly, almost to the point of where we don't even need to say anything else. But we have a few more minutes left, so why not? Uh, but first, let me, uh, let me say this about my own journey at various points in my life I can identify my heart reflect, reflecting each of these soils I have been each of these soils I have transited around to different soils I've moved back and forth I probably have had my foot in, in one soil and another foot in the other um, I, I've, I've lived the life of the four soils I live the life of the four soils. I mention that as a, as a point of reflection, that, that whatever soil you are observing in yourself as we unpack this, those around you right now, and those that you are with in the time between the Sundays, have walked a similar path, are walking a similar path, and we are all evidence that soil can be tilled. The condition of soil today does not have to be the condition of soil tomorrow. That's true for us here right now, and it's even more true for those that we contact in the time between the Sundays. With a missional outlook, when we observe the condition of our heart, our own soil, we can think about this for us, but we also know that our philosophy, the ministry philosophy that we see from the from um, from the gospels, from the life of Jesus, is that we get to give, and so we get the revelation that, that comes from these parables, and then we get to give it as we see others struggle with the condition of their heart. There are some human hearts that the Christian truth right now will find no entry. 
That's just the way it is. There are some people where this, the truth of this message cannot penetrate. Whether this is a lack of interest, whether this is a trauma response born out of spiritual abuse, which I think is more prevalent now than maybe even at the time that, that Jesus was, was uh, maybe more as, as a problem in the American church than it, w- it was in the nation of Israel. This idea that a heart can harden based on spiritual abuse, just look outside and look at the people that, that are fighting to, to, with, uh, with identity issues. Sometimes it's pride. Pride in all of its forms. All of these are failures to realize what we truly draw life from. The hardened heart finds the word of God to be, to be either irrelevant or hostile. Hostile to their life. Hostile to their peace. And it lays open their heart in a manner that Satan can come and replace it with seeds of death. Lies that seem more palatable than the call of God. I think about that, that sense of impending doom that I spoke about at the beginning of this. And I'll tell you that that fear, fear is, fear in and of itself is a lie from the pit of hell. Fear is a lie. And the enemy uses that lie to extraordinary benefit of, of his extending his will. And if we don't think the enemy has a will, that's a sermon for another day that we probably need to have. These lies begin with fear. But also they're lies that, that, that you can have the power that you desire. That you actually can have the power to direct the course of your own life. I've tried that out before. Surprising how, how <laughs> that doesn't really work. Lies of survival. All of these things that actually lead to death more than life. It's a hardened heart. And it's the soil that I've known. If you're thinking about somebody in your life right now that the word of God just can't penetrate, we know how to pray. If you're sitting there struggling with this as well, then again, we know how to pray. Now the rocky soil and the soil crowded with thorns and weeds shows the danger of, of something that we talked about last week with new wine poured into old wineskins. The new covenant that we enjoy, the new covenant that we are in together right now, the grace and the mercy of Jesus that, that cannot be mixed with old religion or even new religion, I guess, if we're going to try to create a religious practice. Um, all of that stuff that's predicated on human effort, it's shown here again that without giving up old theology, without giving up old religion, without giving old places from which we try to draw life from, the seed of the new covenant is unable to take root. We have to defeat the lies. The heart of rocky soil is a heart that that hears the word of God. And in hearing the word of God and understanding what God can do in my life is brought to a place of great joy. And it's probably a moment that we all can remember, that moment uh, where we knew salvation was possible. We knew that joy, that this peace, it transcended everything else around us. It doesn't make sense for the moment, but I feel it. And I feel joy and I feel hope. But then the heart of rocky soil is confronted with what must be given up in order to follow Jesus. 
is confronted with the conflict with those that don't believe in Jesus, is confronted with the struggles of the mysteries of God, is confronted with all of these moments where our faith is tested. We know something that we talk about a lot here is that that for God to be the center of order means that nothing else can be. It means that the story isn't about me. It does include me, but it's not about me. The reality dawns that God isn't a sugar daddy or a genie that grants wishes. The words like abide, obey, and submit are all applied to actions that followers of Jesus must take. The rocky soil leads to to feeling oppression and hardship much more intensely. And that, the heat of that warfare, feeling that oppression and hardship, burns the shallow roots as the person with a rocky soil heart flees to comfort and acceptance from things other than Jesus. I have been the rocky soil. I have fled to things other than Jesus to find relief. I have felt the pressure and ran to other things. The crowded soil is, I think, a picture of competition. And I think that competition is an idol in our culture. It's, it's an indictment on our culture because it's, it's easy to pack life with a multiplicity of interests, ambitions, passions, activities, all of that stuff that there's really no time left over to be a part of the body of Christ. Priorities are, are displayed, and in, in we know this to be true. What we worship is really defined by where our time, energy, and money goes. What we put our resources toward testifies to what we worship. The simple truth is that, that we make time for things that we care about. This is one of the, th- the hardest lessons I ever learned, um, and this was, again, this was Michael Gatlin that shared this with me, is one of the times we were talking about prayer, and, and he was asking me about my prayer, and, and he said, well, you know, you pray about the things that you care about. And that was like just, bam! Because, one, it's like, yeah, that's true. I care about the things I pray about. But when you look at the other side of that coin, uh-oh. And it was a wake-up call for me. And it made me ask questions about what I wasn't praying about. And what did it, where, where was I putting my, my effort, my energy, all of that kind of stuff. But it is true of, of all of this stuff that when we have things competing for our time and what, what we're sacrificing, we have to pay attention to the things that we sacrifice. If we are not together as a family worshiping, if we're not together missionally engaged, if we are not drawing life together from Jesus, if we are competing with all manner of other things, what we see is a lack of flourishing that comes from being choked out. branch 
cannot be attached to the vine that is Jesus at the same time as it is attached to competing priorities. It just doesn't work. There is no life in competition, and the word of God is choked out by the priorities that come from worldly ambition. This is the soil that I've had. This probably is the one soil that I fight with right now. This is the soil that I struggle against with all of the things that can take my time, all of the things you know, that, that I can um, indulge in that really have nothing to do with the mission of God. And a lot of this is reflected in the fact that, that there are times where I'm still asking God to engage with me in my plan rather than being interested in, in his plan. And so I see all of the places where God could do, a, he really, man, if he could just get on my program, he'd really do a job. You know what I mean? If God would just, like, I mean, I've got some good ideas. I think I could figure this thing out. I think I could figure this out in a way that he could probably just come back quicker. <laughs> but if I'm more interested in God being a part of my plan, I can't be interested in being a part of his. And I have a lot of, of competing priorities that look to draw my time, energy, and money. This is the soil that can choke out the flourishing of God. Now, the last soil is the deep soil that does lead to flourishing. One of the things I like, if you've ever taken the um, doing the stuff uh, class that we have, um, a small group that we have in the wintertime and uh, in the summertime, uh, one of the things we talk about, you know, think about doing the stuff that Jesus did. You know, we, we talk about healing. We talk about deliverance. We talk about that stuff. But we start with this point that one of the things that Jesus did was he flourished. And so if we're going to do the stuff that Jesus did, we have to start off with flourishing. The last soil, the deep soil, leads to flourishing. This soil is a product of listening to the teachings of Jesus, hearing the voice of God as that seed cascades into our hearts. We receive it. We receive the teaching even when the teaching hurts. Even when it calls us into discomfort, we hear it, we receive it, and then we allow this seed to motivate action that leads to a crop that yields 30, 60, 100 times what was planted. All of our ambitions are met in this because we see our heart aligned with Jesus. All of our needs for comfort, all of our needs for sustainment, everything is met in this. And it's met not because we invited God into to our plan, but because that's part of his plan in the first place. The Apostle Peter puts it in this way, in 2 Peter. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. That is phenomenal. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. How freaking cool is that? 
that, I mean, does that not just make you want to, like, 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 let's just end this thing and get back out in there? As we close, for those that have ears, let them hear. The parables, these teachings are meant to be heard, received, and acted upon, and that's what we get to do right now. Not acted upon in order to be saved, but because we are saved when we place our faith in this really, really terrible, crappy farmer, but yet so awesome of a father. In John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. Draw life from me. Watch the seed planted in good soil bear fruit. Let's worship.